At first appeared the new motor, with some spectators gazing in wonder at it. The machine seemed to grow in bulk and stature, in spite of all their efforts, and threw off from itself smaller machines after its own pattern. In their path stood a great number of churches, but the machines did not turn out of their courses at all, running over and through those temples. Beyond the churches was a vast multitude of people, whose minds were free and open to the reception of any and all new truth. These hailed the new revelation with shouts of joy and acclamation. This proclamation was a dream by Josiah Wolcott, published in an 1854 issue of the paper, The New Era. The new motor that Josiah Wolcott wrote of was not just a thing of dreams, though its inception may have seemed that way. It was the most infamous of many inventions said to be transmitted from the greatest minds of all time through the former minister turned medium, John Murray Spear. John Benedict Busher, doctor of religious studies and author of The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear, agitator for the spirit land, told us about when he first discovered the life of John Murray Spear. Uh, I just couldn't believe what I was reading about his projects and what he was doing. It seemed to me like, wow, the 19th century was a whole lot stranger than what I had ever been led to believe. Uh, this guy seemed to me to have invented steampunk science fiction, even if it's possible to have invented steampunk uh, back in the 1850s. It just seemed incredible what he was trying to do. While most people seem to only brush against the bizarre, John's whole life from communication with dead founding fathers to mechanical messiahs, was full of strange phenomena. John Murray Spear was born on September 16, 1804, a year after his brother Charles, in Boston, Massachusetts. Spear was named after Pastor John Murray of the First Universalist Church, which the brothers were raised in, eventually becoming pastors themselves. It was common for Universalists to be regarded as extreme liberals, or as they said, progressive in social matters. So John took up all of those progressive reforms of the time, and that included abolitionism and would later include uh, women's rights, prison reform, the abolition of the death penalty, temperance movement, and everything else basically that came his way. Even in Universalism, John pushed the boundaries of what many found acceptable, forcing him to take over smaller and smaller congregations, causing his wife, Betsy, and children to sacrifice for his causes. On Christmas Eve, 1844, John attended a lecture against Roman Catholicism in Portland, Massachusetts. John remained silent throughout. At the end of the lecture, a man stood up to ask if a reply would be permitted. The crowd roared at him to be quiet, which caused John to stand up and ask if they were afraid of free discussion. Because of this, as John left, a mob grabbed him. They forced him to the ground, beating his head repeatedly. A friend of John was able to drag him to safety. Everybody thought he would die, as he had a severe concussion and was spasming throughout the night. Soon, he fell into a coma. After a week, John awoke with a smile on his face. He 
seems to have been visited by spirits, perhaps. He wasn't sure of what happened, but in any event, he was, you might say, a different person. I think in retrospect, you can see that he was not so worldly attuned after that. He was more tuned for what was happening in his head. This change opened him up to a new way of thinking that would threaten to uproot everything, but one which he could not resist. Following his accident, John developed an interest in a growing movement that began after two sisters, Kate and Margaret Fox, claimed to not only be able to receive messages from spirits, but to be able to relay messages back to them. They were able to have full conversations back and forth through knocking sounds and other noises. The belief in these communications was known as spiritualism. It seemed to people at the time to be something like an opening of a spiritual telegraph between spirits in the afterlife and those of us still here in mortal flesh. That was something new, and people were prepared to be excited not only because the electronic telegraph had been something that was seemingly so miraculous, so people were open to the possibility that maybe something like this had begun, intercourse between earth and heaven, but also because it was something different and progressive in the sense that here was something that was a sort of religion that was based on empiricism. It seemed like, hey, not only do we have uh, physical evidence for this sort of communication, here are the sounds, the wrappings, the responses, and so on, but also it was something that was sort of ultra-democratic. You could do it and perform experiments with it on your own kitchen table. And you could uh, sort of do your own theology around what the spirits told you. As John started to see strict religion as a burden on free thought and science, he decided to leave the Church of Universalism to devote his studies to the spiritualist movement. By this time, John had begun to experiment with mesmeric trance. The claim about mesmerism was that you could turn yourself into a seer through developing yourself as a mesmeric subject. So the subject of trance was uh, a sort of fit logically together in the reformer's mind with the notion that now we were on our own and each one of us could find the light of truth and illumination within us through basically visionary experiences. So it was something that reformers practiced. By 1852, John claimed to mostly be taking direction from spirits to guide his life. From their commands, he would travel city to city to perform their mission. He wrote, Thus far, I have learned that when I have been moved to go to a place, that it is usually the best place to go. I am more and more persuaded that if we will hearken to the teachings of the Spirit, it will lead us into all truth and into the way of duty. On April 1st of that year, he had a breakthrough. John fell into a trance for three to four days, holding in his hand only a pen which he claimed to have no control over. Instead, spirits were conveying messages through him. He had become a medium. 
The first message he received read, You must go to Abington tomorrow night. You will be wanted there. Call on David Vining. Go with your horse and chase. Do not fear to do as you are guided. I am your friend and will protect you from all danger and will lead you safely and pleasantly home. You do not know him. I shall impress you again tomorrow to go. The messages were supposedly from the spirit of Oliver Dennett, the man who had nursed him back to health after his beating in Portland. John did as he was told and found Mr. Vining, who was incredibly sick. Even though they had never met before, John sat by his side and placed his hand upon Vining's leg, which was in much pain. Despite his family's skepticism, Vining claimed that the pain was gone. John believed that this was now his calling, to travel the world on missions from the spirits to heal people in need. But the spirits had far greater plans for him. A year to the day after he had begun as a medium, John received the following message from the spirit world. The undersigned, by the instrument which is being herein communicated, say to the inhabitants of Earth, on which this scribe dwells, that an association called the Association of Beneficence has been selected, qualified, and commissioned to teach of the benefices. And they now say and declare that they have in contemplation a system of revealments which will much surprise the dwellers of the lower earth. They had chosen John Murray Spear as their scribe to carry out their work. Their message was signed through John in 12 different handwritings by some of the greatest minds of all time, including the spirits of Benjamin Franklin, John Murray, and Thomas Jefferson. John looked around the room at the followers gathered for his messages and later wrote, they looked upon me with tender, compassionate eyes as they had decided that I had become a lunatic. I knew their verdict and greatly feared I might be confined to an asylum for the insane, but I was mercifully preserved from such an unhappy fate. The spirits would later reveal that the Association of the Beneficence was just one of a larger Congress named the General Assembly of Spirits, which comprised of seven associations. The Electricizers, Elementizers, Educationizers, Governmentizers, Healthfulizers, Agriculturalizers, and, of course, the Beneficence. Each group was made up of the spirits of luminaries throughout time in their fields. It would be a new era where spirits from here and beyond would work together for total reformation. And, of course, John would be their vessel. In November, John received a message from the spirit of Benjamin Franklin, the Association of Electricizer spokesman. They would begin transmitting plans for a new motor, a machine that would have perpetual motion. Great and critical search has long been made for perpetual motion, said Franklin's spirit. Yet it has always existed. When it shall be revealed to the mind of an inhabitant of your earth, it will be applied to uses most important. And the time has arrived for the disclosure to be made. This discovery will produce immense changes on your earth, such as words cannot describe. Not only was this to be a mechanical marvel, but proof of the spirits and the great things they can do for this world. It would motivate mankind to reach a new evolutionary form. They called it, among many names, the new mode of power. It was a phrase that was used for other 
projects, non-spiritual projects, but steam engines and new sources of energy. People were experimenting and developing new kinds of new motors, but this new motor was going to be something different. Now exactly what it was, was unclear at the beginning and indeed never really came together, but it was more like self-powered. Metaphysically speaking, you might say that was important to reformers because they were convinced that people themselves had to become self-powered and sovereign individuals and not slaves or bound to any earthly power. John knew little to nothing about mechanics or electronics. But his followers said this would prove the legitimacy of the project because it could only work if the spirits truly spoke through him. One of John's followers had built a large home with a tower at High Rock Hill in Lynn, Massachusetts. After several of the followers had a vision of a spirit coming down to the tower, it was decided this would be where the new motor would be constructed. John would be in trance and would dictate the instructions he was receiving day by day to his followers and they would take it down and then they would make the necessary adjustments it was like hey we've got benjamin franklin on the phone sort of um, and he's telling us what to do next so the thing kind of built itself up and accreted slowly over time one part was added one day another part was added another day then Another part was, oh, well, you didn't do that right. You have, you have to attach something else to that. And it was, it was, well, I don't want to call it trial and error, but there were plenty of things that weren't clear when, when the instructions were first given. Andrew Jackson Davis, a close friend whose writings first piqued John's interest in spiritualism, visited during the construction of the new motor and had this to say about John and his followers. They invest the very materialism with principles of interpretation, which gives out an emanation of religious feelings altogether new in the development of scientific truth. Each wire is precise, sacred, as a spiritual verse. Simon Hewitt, a newspaper publisher and follower of John's, was so enthralled that he started a paper which chronicled all of the announcements of the spirits. It was called The New Era, or Heaven Open to Man what it was going to do, how it was going to be providing free energy for everyone, how it was going to go on forever, how it was to create a model, an ideal for human society and for individual humans. All of this stuff was just kind of floating around in their heads. So one of the ideas was something on the, on the order of like an electric motor that you could attach parts to, and it would drive other motors, presumably agricultural implements and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. So this was, this was the basic way it was that they fixated on by the time it was complete, that it was going to be the sign that the thing was alive, that this armature would rotate. They didn't believe it would simply be a machine, but a new creation altogether. Franklin Spirit said, A living, working mechanism can be constructed. It would reproduce the human form, but it would also reproduce the macrocosm, the whole universe, the perpetuum mobile. It was like an ideal that was in the heads of these folks who were building this machine and day by day learning more about it as they were given instructions on its building. 
that this was something that was a sort of model of what the human would be in the future. It was a new man. It was going to be called the electrical infant. It was built on a large wooden table in the tower. As it took shape, it began to be modeled after the human body. It had parts that were analogous to the brain, lungs, arms, legs, and even hair. I have a I have a notion that it kind of looks like the lunar lander, but maybe with exposed parts like this armature that was supposed to rotate and parts that were meant to work like a motor. Like if you took the casing off of a mechanical motor and you could see the parts moving inside, it was, you know, it didn't need a casing as such. Ritual modeling was also involved. John's followers would act and behave as machines to understand how a machine would work. And they would perform acts for the machine to demonstrate how to be a living thing. They would even wrap metals in oiled pouches and consume them to become more machine-like. Through John, the spirits gave over 200 messages from July 1853 to May 1854. The new motor was finally complete. There was just one problem. It didn't work. It seemed to be completed. And then they spent a lot of days thinking, well, maybe we didn't do this quite right or that quite right. It hadn't started yet. And the word had got out in the community, so everybody knew that this was happening. So people were waiting for something to happen, and it didn't happen. Some people had noted that there was some small movement of these suspended steel balls, but they were attributing that to static electricity in the air. But basically, the big armature was not turning. So the spirits, or John, really, decided that it needed some kind of jump start. John gave it a charge from a basic static generator, which caused a slight pulsatory and vibratory motion in the pendants around the periphery of the table. This motion was temporary. The spirits were consulted. They said that simple static electricity wouldn't be enough because it wasn't living energy. The next step was to bring it in contact with model persons of both sexes, in such a way they might impart it with their personal magnetisms. Mediums had already believed that powerful personal magnetisms caused certain people to be able to connect with the afterlife in seances. This was an extension of that idea, harnessing these magnetisms not through an object, but to the new motor. Since the new motor was supposed to be all-encompassing, the team was sent to select people of both coarse and fine energies. They would sit around the table, and through some form of contact with the machine, would transfer their energies into the new motor. In the spirit's message titled, Of Electric Motor, some of these processes were clearly outlined. Much of this did not make it far beyond John's inner circle, because John purposely edited the messages, believing that many people would be outraged because of the sexual magic that was used to collect the personal magnetisms. First, go into a trance, then have sexual intercourse, then have a dream where something would come to you based on these spirits with affinity to the project would visit you and, and give you ideas. So they developed what looked like each person being assigned or consecrated to the name of a different mechanical function of the machine. So one was called a needleist, you know, for example. And then they did some kind of improvised uh, ritual or dance where they would 
all the parts would interact and, you know, to do some basic functions as if they were doing the functions of sewing. Then they would retire to a room next door. They would go to sleep, then hopefully have some vision, awake with some kind of vision in the morning about how to, you know, build a machine. Once the transfer of energies had been completed, the spirit selected John to be the father of the new mode of power. John said he agreed only from a rational confidence in the wisdom and good faith of the invisible directors. It needed some kind of influx of spiritual energy. So he was figuring out a way to try to do that and constructed himself a sort of armored suit. I think these were made of plates of metal, maybe zinc and copper or something that were strung around him. You know, again, he's he's got some simple idea that he could attract etheric energy to himself and hold it in himself like a battery and translate it into the machine. What we have is descriptions of him walking towards the machine, having himself gotten all juiced up. Beyond John, there needed to be a woman, a mother. While the man would bring the machine wisdom, a woman would supply the machine with love. They said, one without maternal experience could not be in any true sense a producer of an intellectual, moral, social, religious, spiritual, or celestial thought child. There must be a basis. Hence, in the selection of a feminine, a more than woman must be chosen, a mother. Sarah Newton, a follower of John's and wife of one of his richest supporters, had a vision that explained the true meaning of the crucifix to her. For weeks following her visions, she began having pregnancy symptoms, despite not actually being pregnant. John did not know about her vision or condition, but the spirits told him to invite her to come to High Rock. When she arrived, she began to experience labor pains around the machine. Sarah and John realized what was happening. She was to be the mother of the electrical infant. She connected to the machine without an apparatus. Finally, the new motor moved, but not by much. According to a follower present, the silver balls that dangled from wires sticking out from the machine showed signs of life. As Sarah approached or moved away from it, the vibrations would grow, sometimes up to where the silver balls were swinging about an inch or decrease depending on where she was, thus indicating that the mechanism had been brought into such a state as to be susceptible to the action of human magnetism. The spirits, through John, sent a message. Unto your earth a child is born. Its name shall be the electrical motor. It is the offspring of mind, of the union of mind and matter, impregnated by invisible elements. It is to move the mortal, scientific, philosophic, and religious worlds. It is now thoroughly, electrically, magnetically, chemically, spiritually, and celestially impregnated. It needs material care, like other newborn babies. The New Era ran an article titled, Important Announcement. In large print above, it read, The Thing Moves. The announcement ran, This new mode of power is to lead the way in the great speedily coming salvation. It is to be the physical savior of the race. The history of its inception, its various stages of progress, and its completion will show the world a most beautiful, and significant analogy to the advent of Jesus as the spiritual savior of the race. The child is born. Not long hence, he will go alone. 
Not everybody in the spiritualist movement was as impressed by the electrical motor. The Spiritual Telegraph wrote an article called The New Mode of Power, rather premature. Here's blasphemy going on in High Rock, trying to create a new race of human beings, messing with the creator's prerogatives. Some people regarded it as a satanic project. Others regarded it as simple foolishness and craziness and hokum and, you know, hopeless uh, and found it to be uh, a matter of, of high comedy. So I think there was any number of different reactions, you know, from skepticism to horror. John Murray Spear had, by his actions, had distanced himself from what you might call a more level-headed or, depending on your point of view, more conventionally bound um, members of the reform community. In August, a group of young men from Randolph broke into where the machine was being kept and destroyed it by pulling out its heart. Some people believed that John had fabricated the whole story to cover up for his failure. The editor of the Scientific American wrote, We do not believe a word respecting a mob breaking into the building and destroying the spiritual machine. We are of the opinion that it was broken by the crafty author of it, whose schemes had come to an exact point of exposing his ridiculous pretensions. With its destruction, the spirits had decided the world was not yet ready for the new motor. There was more work to be done, and the quest for a new mode of power would evolve. Following the destruction of the new motor, the Association of Electricizers communicated a flurry of new inventions, which included telepathic transmission towers to send messages directly into people's minds, floating carriages powered by high spiritualized mediums, and the electric ship to be powered by personal magnetisms, the type of which charged the new motor. But a new idea took hold, that the new motor would come back and move once the world had changed. The spirits spoke of a utopia of free thinkers and lovers who worked only through empirical evidence. It was up to John and his followers to bring about this new society for the electrical motor to be reborn into. The first thing that would have to be done away with was false marriage. That is, marriage defined by laws and contracts. Instead, they would bring about true marriage, aka sexual union based on attraction. So in order to have that happen, you needed to create a society, a small society perhaps at first, where people could follow their leanings in this regard. This new society would be started at the springs of Keyentone, New York, the construction of which would be guided by the spirits. Each building was supposed to be built to correspond to a seated human body. There would be a room with a dome for a library to mimic the brain. Down the center of the building would run a hallway that mimics the spinal column. It would allow for communication via connecting tubes that would transmit sound and water. In October 1854, they moved into the new commune, which they were now calling Harmonia. It was dedicated to new inventions and to the encouragement of inventors when they most require assistance. Its doors were open to the homeless and downtrodden. John unveiled that he would go on a trip across the U.S. looking for investors. Carolyn Hinckley, a follower of his, would accompany him and work to dictate the messages the spirits transmitted through John. When they arrived in Boston after several months, scandal broke out because Carolyn was obviously pregnant, despite John still being married. They denied that John was the father. 
Carolyn described it as immaculate conception and a pure, marvelous machine, the next step for the new motor. In 1859, Carolyn gave birth to a nine-pound baby boy named Murray Hinckley Spear, the first new man. Following the pregnancy, one of his followers, Eliza Kenny, took John to court. Her filing read, I charge brother John M. Spear with obtaining money under false pretenses to carry out his purposes and projects. I charge him that as a medium, communications are made through him, directing persons as to precise practical steps to be taken by them, which greatly result in their injury. During this trial, many of the secrets of the inner circle became known, most damningly, the free love practice. These overlapping scandals splintered John's followers and made him a pariah, not just to the secular world, but to spiritualists as well. Ex-spiritualist Benjamin Hatch wrote that before being a medium, John Murray Spear was universally acknowledged a paragon of almost every Christian virtue. But now, his family is broken up, and the wife, to whom he had once been a most worthy husband, is forsaken. He is traveling with his paramour, who acts as his scribe in reporting his spiritual lectures, and bore to him what they call a spiritual baby, but of sufficient materiality to counterbalance nine pounds. A small group of followers did stay with John, and they believed that huge change was about to come. That change came when the Civil War broke out. During this time, John founded a new group of people who were not opposed to ideas of true marriage and free love. In 1861, the spirit of Benjamin Franklin came forward with a decree for seven years of modelic behavior, the end of which they would be able to show a model state, a model church, a model commerce, a model home, with some specimens of model machines. But they would need a way to fund this. Through the same rituals that had given them the plans for the new motor, the spirits unveiled plans for an affordable, automatic sewing machine. And of course, John was a huge advocate of women's rights and freeing women from the bondage of domestic slavery, et cetera, et cetera. In one sense, it was a continuation of, of this, right? It was, it was a machine that would free women from domestic slavery. And so it was an important invention. Also, it could make some money. The ad for the sewing machine sounded very similar to the proclamations about the new motor. It said, What shall we say of a sewing machine so simple as to be understood by a child, which takes up common needles and sews like a thing of life, and which can be sold for the paltry sum of $10? The importance of such an invention surpasses even the comprehension of human mind. But yet, such is the Union $10 family sewing machine. It stands alone, far above and beyond anything ever attempted in the sewing machine line, and thus must ever stand a child of inspiration, which conceived it and almost an immortal monument to the inventive genius of man. Unfortunately, much like the new motor, they could never actually get it to work automatically, which is how they envisioned it. Their version had a hand crank when it was finally released. While it wasn't a total failure, the best they did was break even. In 1862, Emma Hardinge, spiritualist leader and adversary of free love, went after John Murray Spear and his followers as an example of the rot inside the spiritualist movement. She believed a new movement permeating the ranks of spiritualism which had already enlisted in its interests some of the wealthiest and most distinguished citizens of the New England states contained seeds of irrevocable mischief, if not ruin, to the cause of spiritualism. 
Hardinge founded the Church of Spiritualism as a way to draw the movement out of closed meetings and secret societies, and into respectable services. While some saw it as regressing back to the rule of churches they fought back from, many spiritualists still saw themselves as Christians and embraced this new normal, cutting John Murray Spear out of the movement he had once been a leader of. Thus, he went to Europe, where spiritualism was taking off. Before he left, he officially separated from Betsy and married Carolyn, after being transmitted from the spirits a message that legal divorce was acceptable to break free the chains of false marriage. Eventually, his family moved back to the States after believing that Europeans cared more about parlor tricks, like wrappings and levitating chairs, than actual spiritual communication. They eventually settled in Philadelphia. I tend to think that he was constantly enlivened by these visions he had. Of course, he found obstacles in the way to making them real. And some of them are not only obstacles in the way that the natural world really works, also maybe disappointment among his followers and opposition, and mocking and so on. He eventually was told by his spirit friends that he could re retire more or less and transfer his responsibilities to someone else. When he retired in August 1872, John wrote a final report of domestic and foreign missions titled, 20 Years on the Wing, a brief narrative of my travels as a missionary sent forth and sustained by the Association of Beneficence in Spiritland. In it, he writes, It is proper to say that my labors have been performed in faith. Very few have understood my mission, that they could give me either counsel or assistance, and therefore, my trust has been in the invisible world. In the fall of 1887, John began to see spirits around his bed. One was his grandmother, whose presence made him feel as a baby in her soothing and loving embrace. On October 5th, he passed away in Carolyn's arms. After his death, the public focused on his philanthropic work, prison reform, abolition, his missionary work alongside men like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, work that history books have essentially erased him from. Decades of his life were ignored and buried. Every controversy and eccentricity swept under the rug. For many years, the only place that had an extensive history of his work was a book by Emma Hardinge on the history of spiritualism. She was not kind. Even the obituary that Carolyn wrote made no mention of Keontone, Benjamin Franklin, true marriage, associations of spirits, sewing machines, or the new motor. But there are rumors that the new motor may still be out there, watching the world model its behavior, awaiting for a time to unveil itself as our mechanical messiah. Do you have any bizarre stories from history you would like to share? Let us know on our Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by R.J. Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. A special thanks to John B. Busher for sharing his insights and knowledge with us. His book, The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear, Agitator for the Spiritland, is available for purchase on Amazon.com. Also thanks to Graham Plowman for allowing us to use his music. You can listen to more of his music at www.grahamplowman.com. <laughs>